Welcome to the Empire Podcast, brought to you this week by MCM Comic Con. Running from 26th to 28th of May, the MCM Comic Con is one of the UK's biggest pop culture events, and you can purchase your tickets now at mcmcomiccon.com. I said that one really fast. Um, on the Empire Podcast this week, we dive headfirst into Alien Covenant, audition for a role in Guy Ritchie's Aladdin, and engage in a little chestburster chat with Danny McBride. This and more on the movie podcast that has not only been deserted by Chris Hewitt and abandoned by Helen O'Hara, both of whom apparently have better things to do, but even Phil the Semlin has buggered off without turning the stove off, leaving me, James Dyer, enemy of fun... <laughs> Nemesis of Stanley, Scourge of Carpathia, and Sorrow of Moldavia to take the driving seat. Joining me on this express elevator to hell are two other crew members from the Good Ship Empire, both of whom sit across from me with looks of deep trepidation on their terrified faces. First, we have a man who reinforces every negative conception you ever had about London cyclists. It is sickeningly entitled millennial John Nugent. Hello. How are you, John? Uh- <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. Are you feeling good about this particular podcast? Uh, yes. Yeah, no, I'm feeling very happy. <laughs> I think there's an even chance you get out of this one alive. <laughs> John, I think we can all agree, is the kind of uh, slightly no-mark support band to this particular event. Headlining this week's podcast, however, <laughs> is the main event. She is the editor-in-chief of Empire, first of her name, the Unburnt, Queen of the Andals, and of the Roinar, and of the First Men, Khaleesi of Great Grass Sea, Breaker of Chains, and Mother of Dragons. She is, of course, Terry of the House White. James Dyer, can I just pick up on trep- looking at you with trepidation? <laughs> is that I'm normally looking at you with disdain and sometimes thinking, what a bellend. But if you see trepidation, <laughs> then I would hate to argue with you. Do you think that was too much, that intro? Was that good? <laughs> Do you feel special? Except, I feel really special. Really, really special. And if you mean 10% of it, then you, you have secured a place in my heart for all of eternity. I am going to address you like that every single time you come Please to the do. office. Please do. Um, what have you been up to this week, Terry? Well, James Dyer, John Nugent, what's happened this week? <laughs> Has anything happened this week? Have we, for example, moved office from London's bustling Soho to London's slightly terrifying, especially in your case, James Dyer, because you seem to think it's 1997 and they're selling cannabis on street corners. Uh, London's Camden. Yeah, we have left the cosy embrace of London's Covent Garden behind and come to the crusty charms of Camden Town. (laughs) And if I see another fucking dreadlock, I cannot be held responsible for my actions. Um, It's it's been challenging, I think. And uh, the only thing that's making me happy is we are like four doors down from a burger restaurant, Fat Burger. There are other burgers available in London. However, this one is the one closest to us and I've had four in the last two days. So I may need to get a new byline picture done for my editor's letter, which is me kind of double the size I am now. Sort of a Jabba-esque. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's handy for my bongs. Yeah. I can go and pick up my cannabis paraphernalia I, we, on a I daily went, basis. I went looking for a can of Coke at lunchtime. I was trying to find a newsagent, and I, I've discovered that trying to get caffeinated is problematic. If you want to get tattooed or pierced, you've got no problems <laughs> at all. But apparently looking for a snack is too much to ask. Yes. But, um, oh, come on, there's like a French cafe on the corner. I went in the other day. It sells tiny coffees for three quid, so much so that I had to order two because I was like, these aren't big enough. And the woman looked at me like I was a heathen and then charged me 10 quid for two coffees and a, and a pastry. So I think you mock it too much. It sounds a little bit like you crossed the border into Primrose Hill there. I did. Yeah, I See, did. that's where you went wrong. I know, I know. Interesting. Well, yes, we, we are getting used to our new digs. Hmm. We're recording the podcast from a new studio this week, so yeah, yes. all new. It's not as grey and lifeless as I'm used to. I'm quite strange. It's not. It's special. It's it's, it's interesting. Here. It's, I, I, it's odd. 
disconcerting. This is a first. I've never hosted the podcast before. I was hoping to mix things up a little this time. I thought, you know, throw in a quiz, maybe make it more of a panel show. <laughs> I don't know, like, like, never mind the bell ends or something. I don't know what you want to call it. And, uh, but then I realised, you know, it, I, everyone will. I mean, they may well unsubscribe anyway, if I'm, if I'm honest with you. But uh, I thought, let's try and keep that to a, to a bare minimum. We should, uh, we should probably point out before we go on, um, I mean, Chris and Helen have no excuse, but Phil has a pretty good excuse for not being here this week, right? Should he does. mention that? He's multiplied. He has multiplied. Yes, he's cloned himself. <laughs> he is. In the manner of a small, in a small child. So a big congratulations to Phil. On yeah. Well done on your sperm, Phil. Phil. On well done additions. on your sperm. Yes. Congratulations on having sex, Phil. <laughs> yes, yes. Phil DeSemlin, I can exclusively reveal, has had sex. <laughs> um... So I will say what I've been doing this week. So I spent the entire week watching Netflix, uh, specifically 13 Reasons Why, the depressing teenage suicide drama on Netflix, which has utterly destroyed me. Mm-hmm. Utterly destroyed me. I've, watched, I've done nothing else all this week. Every night, every commute, I've been watching the show. It is absolutely brutal. Um, incredibly hard to watch, incredibly harrowing. Uh, and and I just, it's fantastic. Watch it. Well, we were talking about this, right? And I've yeah. seen two. Um, and I obviously knew... Of, everyone knows that there's a suicide, and that's the point, and it's 13 reasons why mm. they commit suicide, which, by the way, is anti-every kind of conceived wisdom about suicide, which is you clearly can't label it on a person <laughs> or a specific reason. But for dramatic purposes, that is what it's is It's an happening. excellent framing device. It is an excellent <laughs> framing device. Um, but I watched two episodes, and I actually really liked it. But um, I was really busy that week, so instead I just fast-forwarded to uh, the suicide bit. That is the most you thing that's ever been done. I know, I know, because I've got no patience and no time, and it's instant gratification, give it to me now. So I skipped everything, just watched the suicide and then decided I didn't need to watch the rest of it. <laughs> you have to earn that scene. You've got to go through 12 and a half hours of pain before you get to that particular bit. Before you get to the reward. Which is the, so you, the slashy wrist You're stuff. watching it like porn, like you're skipping the... You're skipping to the money shot. To the, to the money shot. Oh, were they talking again? <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Feelings. Oh, my God. So, unless you're Terry and you want to skip straight to the suicide bit, I heartily recommend watching that, um, but not if you want to be, you know, happy and life-affirmed. See, I'm surprised because I didn't have this down for a James Dyer... But it's it's I'm I'm like the closet no, teen drama guy. Do you it, know what I mean? Is. I love James my teen stuff. Has the front of a of an angry middle aged man, but he is in fact a teenage girl. Yeah, Helen has often accused me of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's when I when I interviewed Anne Hathaway for Interstellar, and uh, she said something about she was going to be in Taming of the Shrew, and I said, "Oh, Ten Things I Hate About You is one of my favourite teen movies." And she went, <laughs> "Yeah." And what are your other favourite teen movies? And I went, "Well, I'm a big fan of Mean Girls, and obviously <laughs> I love Clueless. I mean, who doesn't?" And then you know, and I went through the whole list. We went through John Hughes, and she just stared at me, slack jawed. She's like, you weren't kidding, were you? I think she judged me. You, I think, sure. are the only man. You've read the Twilight books, right? I have read all of them. Just because you wanted yeah. to. Well, no, it was partly. I went to Comic Con the particular year that Twilight, the first one, came out, and uh, the panel was like nothing I'd ever seen. Like people screaming at our yeah. and caged you. And I kind of felt obliged to find out what it was. So I went straight to a bookshop and I bought all the books. And I read them back to back. They're great, right? Because I feelings. really enjoy. Oh, I mean, it's. What was it that she wrote them whilst listening to. Awful emo band. Oh, almost certainly. I can't remember which one. Somebody tweet me and tell me, but it was basically <laughs> awful emo band, loads of feelings, and she wrote it, and it's so bad that there are some lines. I think it's the one where it's like, "You're my own personal brand of heroin." <laughs> I'm like, I feel like that about boys sometimes. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. I feel like that about ice cream. <laughs> Your own personal brand of heroin. Pretty much. That's yeah. that is the most James Dye thing ever. And on that note, let's stop titting about. Uh, 
We will start, as we are wont to do, with a question. Uh, in this case, from at Michael C. Snyder, who asks, now that Guardians Volume 2 is out, what are the best opening sequences in films? Mm. Well, I mean, the Quite Guardians 2 opening sequence is brilliant. It's magnificent. If you've seen it. Mm. Uh, as we talk about on the Guardians Galaxy Volume 2 yes. spoiler special now. podcast, yes, um, which is out now. I'm going to say up. I'm going to throw up in the ring mm. for the simple reason that up is what? I mean, it's what, 10, 12 minutes, whatever that the, the sort of prologue is, where you see Mr. Fredrickson sort of growing up and him with his wife and stuff. I. If it's very hard for film to make me cry. That makes me cry in less than 10 minutes, which is. I, is quite an achievement is that true genuinely I, I had tears pouring down my face when I saw that I imagine you weeping a lot I don't <laughs> really? know why I imagine you sat at home mainly weeping that's yeah. kind of my the vision in my head I do more of that at work I would say than at home <laughs> but uh, yeah no that, that really gets me every time and I genuinely believe that if it doesn't you're a Cylon I'd like to say Rocky 2 really yeah so if everyone remembers, obviously Rocky ends, no spoilers, but you know, Rocky ends with um, Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa and it's the big fight and they both kind of knock each other out and then it's a struggle to get up, pulling up against the ropes before the count of 10 and, and you know, and uh, Rocky wins by, well, no, Rocky doesn't win. Apollo Creed wins by the kind of skin of his teeth, but the kind of messages he'd said all the way through, Rocky had, I just want to go the dif- distance. Therefore, he had won. In a, in a nature he had won the beginning of Rocky 2 is amazing because it's they actually replay part of that scene and him pulling himself back up and then it just continues and it's this amazing scene as the um, ambulances kind of speed through Philadelphia and it's them being wheeled in and they're like it's some of the best and worst prosthetics you have ever seen in your entire <laughs> life their faces are hanging off they've got bruises they're covered in blood and it's them both getting operated on and getting kind of pieced their faces being pieced back together and there's this amazing moment where Apollo Creed comes into Rocky Balboa's room and kind of there's a, a moment of mutual respect as their kind of as their bodies lay broken and bruised and battered. And I just love it because it, it basically picks up where the other one left off, but it's it just starts right in the middle of the action. Mm. And I just that is one of my I anybody who listens to the podcast knows I normally talk about Rocky Four when I'm on, <laughs> which I've got a lot of time for. But in terms of opening sequences, Rocky Two. Takes it home. That's a good choice. That's a very good choice. John, Thanks, what, James. Uh, uh, that, was that patronising enough for you? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, can you mansplain just like 20% <laughs> well, more? Well, Terry, let me tell you about rocket and boxing. <laughs> Actually, I think you'll find. I think yeah. you'll find the beginning is a metaphor for the working classes and their struggle against the oppressive middle. Uh, it isn't at all. No. John. Um, I had Reservoir Dogs. I love how Reservoir Dogs opens. It's mm. quite an obvious choice, perhaps, but, you know, they have that whole talk about tipping and then it goes into the slow motion sequence with the suits little green bag little green bag mm. smoking sunglasses it's very good because that was that was the, that's the tarantino scene that kind of put him on the map for a lot of people i think wasn't yeah. it yeah, yeah. his particular brand of kind of fizz pop pop culture you know rapid fire banter yeah that's a lovely lovely scene um, God, there are so many. Where to even start? Well, I mean, are we it... talking opening titles or opening mm. sequences? I think we're, I think we're we, talking we sequences. Include... I mean, yes. like, so if you were Bond, it would be pre It'd be the, the, right, the cold And if we're going to say Bond, I'm throwing Goldeneye in there. That is my favourite Bond. That's a great pre-credit thing yeah. uh, for the bungee jump, for the Brosnan. You who don't was new really to the see role. his face the no. entire time. It's all sort of... And for Sean Bean's brilliant accent, finish the job, James. <laughs> for England, James. Send them I all mean, to hell. I mean, Jesus. Uh, but no, I love that. I like the Casino Royale kind of black and white mm. hit one. That's the assassination. That, that's nice. 
Um, the best one, of course, is The Spy Who Loved Me, as reenacted by Alan Partridge. Well, <laughs> well obviously. Skiing down the ski slope pursued by baddies and then... He, he does a little backflip. I'm not sure why, but it's definitely not showing off. <laughs> what about Baby Driver, which we all saw last week? Mm-hmm. Um, and without giving too much away, I think we've all been quite vocal on social media about how much we liked it. Um, official Empire Review, not in yet, but it's it's fair to say that that opening sequence is one of the best things I've seen on screen this it year. It starts with some driving. I don't think that's a spoiler to <laughs> say. I think that a, a, a character called Baby <laughs> and he's driving. The film is called Baby Driver and the opening sequence is something else entirely. Hashtag spoilers. That's not a spoiler. Joking, joking. Um, I'm going to get Mission Impossible 3, which, as you all know, is my favourite Mission Impossible, despite what you all say. Because uh, it's that interrogation scene, isn't it? It's, it's Hoffman talking to, to Ethan Hunt and uh, then obviously killing, in inverted commas, <laughs> Michelle Monaghan. Uh, and Hoffman is absolutely terrifying in that film. But to drop you right in his lap at that point and see him in full mm. flow, I think is incredibly powerful. I love that. And that's really good. Also, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Big fan of the kind of River Phoenix young indie thing. Mm-hmm. Better than every young Indiana Jones episode combined. It's got the snakes gag. It's got the whip scar on the chin gag. It's uh, yeah, It's got fedora in it. I mean, it's just lovely. It's a lovely little one. And also the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, that opening sequence with that sort of Busby Berkeley style <laughs> musical, <laughs> which sure. is as good as any musical from the 30s or 40s you'll ever see. That's a good shout. Um I really like, um, from recently, Nocturnal Animals, Tom Ford. I've not seen that. Uh, it's it's quite, um, it just sticks in your memory. It's just basically a montage of nude, obese women jiggling around with um, glitter floating everywhere. Enough about your Saturday night, John. <laughs> I was going to say, James uh, is suddenly very interested in seeing this <laughs> film. Saying, yes. um, uh, Gold member, that cameo-filled... <laughs> Uh, was it? It's Tom Cruise, uh, Kevin Spacey. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who is it? Danny DeVito. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. The Austin Pussy thing. Yes. That scene of Spielberg. It's yeah. That's <laughs> uh, yeah. I really love DeVito in that. Isn't it? Hey, I'm money me. <laughs> what was that? I don't know. <laughs> that's my DeVito. It's almost certainly racist. Let's move on from that. Um, I'm going to throw in uh, Social Network because it's uh, Aaron Sorkin, mm. obviously, and that's one of the great dumping scenes for me. Oh, and also establish Rooney Mara, which is yes. Nice. Um, and also Children of Men with the exploding coffee shop because that's one. That's one shot. It's that shaky handheld shot. I can't remember how minutes it is, yeah. how many minutes it is, but it's got the baby Diego's dead and then the coffee shop blows up. And if we're talking tracking shots or mm-hmm. we're talking continuous shots, we can probably talk about uh, the player as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Any others? Or have we thoroughly abused that? Dark Knight, Scream, Goodfellas, Matrix, Train Spotting, Lust for Life. Yes. So many. As ever, if you want to hear three of us ramble incoherently for 10 minutes while in no way answering your question, do tweet us using the hashtag EmpirePodcast or email us at podcast at EmpireMagazine.com. We're also on Facebook using the terribly clever handle Empire Magazine. Right, now that's out of the way, should we have some news? Let's have yes. some news. Yes. What has been happening on the interweb this week? Educate me. Oh, so much, actually. Quite a busy week for news. There's been lots of trailers. There have, which is always, as we say, great to talk about on the radio, but yes. let's do it anyway. Uh, there's been Blade Runner 2049, mm. which is arguably the most exciting trailer this week, I would say. It was incredible. Yeah. Wasn't it? It's just incredible. Wasn't it? And we've, I think everybody's <laughs> been pretty nervous, it's fair to say. When we first saw the glimpse, any kind of stills that were released in the US... Um, it was, you're always nervous when it's something like this, which everybody loves so much and is such a kind of an iconic film, but just visually has such a distinct, you know, that, that kind of dystopian vision that was created was so remarkable and so iconic and so memorable. 
Um, and, you know, it's always that thing of don't fucking ruin it, mm. um, which is essentially in your gut is all you're really saying is please don't ruin it, please don't ruin it, please don't ruin it. Um, and obviously, yeah, Blade Runner 2049, the trailer came out and just... Visually, I just thought it was remarkable, rich, kind of had taken it on um, without completely reinventing it. So it felt weirdly fresh and exciting, but still had a real consistency of like mm-hmm. vision and, and really and really kind of you you felt the echoes back to the original film, but it didn't in any way feel like derivative of that at all. Um, Goz looked cool as fuck, right? I, I mean, coat. I want his coat. He looked amazing. Mm. He looked amazing. And I was initially not that jazzed about their casting, right? Because I think he's really pretty. Do I want somebody <laughs> that pretty in a Blade Runner film? I'm not entirely... I wasn't entirely convinced. The gods does a certain thing for me. Not that thing that you're thinking of. The gods <laughs> does a certain thing for me. And I wasn't sure that I wanted him in Blade Runner and in this dystopian kind of vision that would have been created. Um, but I thought he looked amazing and it got me really, really excited for the film, actually. You compare Goz's coat to uh, Harrison Ford's pre-mark grey T-shirt. Oh. <laughs> I, I love the way you call it pre-mark. pre-mark. I was like, what? That's like pre-marché. What is it? Primarni. <laughs> it's Primark, in it. Yeah, Primark. Fucking hell. Is, there a, is, is that a definite, is that like confirmed canon? That's yes. how you pronounce it. Yes. I'm pretty certain Primark <laughs> is canon. I think where I come from, it's Primark. What, when you where, go, where? You, you go to shop at Primark, <laughs> then pick up your prescription from Butts. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is what happens well, in the Also, Jared Leto, I thought he was oh, wow. like, just yes. that, that whole, that moment in the trailer with him and he opens his eyes. Mm. Uh, for somebody, please watch the trailer because otherwise yeah, just this means it, nothing to you. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, ri- like took my breath oh. away. So it seems like Jared Leto is playing like a replicant factory mm. owner or yes. something in the most amazing looking factory you've ever seen. I mean, this is not like an industrial warehouse. This is like a giant yellow hall the size of a cathedral or it's something. It's not unlike our new Camden office, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I love it. I love that it's still got that kind of 80s vision of what the future is. Right. And just the music has that, you know, Vangelis-y vibe to it. I mean, everything about it's fantastic. Uh, Denis Villeneuve can frankly do no wrong, regardless. So. Roger Deakin should, uh, should win his Oscar for this. Well, let's I mean, hope. The cinematography is astonishing so yeah if you haven't if you haven't watched the trailer we've basically ruined it for you but go and uh, go and see it it is fantastic uh, other trailers this week there was The Gifted wasn't there which is the X-Men TV series which is a very short trailer which isn't I mean someone magics or mutants some some crisps out of a vending machine that's pretty much the high point <laughs> I'm sure the show will be great but that didn't show me an awful lot it looks interesting I mean it's gonna it's got its work cut out to be better than Legion yeah, which was has. Pretty amazing, um, but it looks. Inter- we've got Brian Singer directing the pilot, I think. So, mm. yes. so that's that's a good thing. That does bode good well. continuation from the the film franchise. Yeah, it left me cold. Did it? I, I hate to be the voice of negativity, but yeah, that's I fair. saw it and I was like, it left me cold and dead inside, even more <laughs> even more so than I usually am. So I'm I'm desperate to see a little bit more to try and get more of a sense of actually the scale and the mm. kind of ambition of this. But um, yeah. My flame is unlit. What? How did you feel about the mist? My did metaphorical you flame. Your metaphorical. My, fr- <laughs> my metaphorical flame is unlit. How was your flame when you saw? Did you see the mist trailer? That was terrifying. Yeah, it's really bloody, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I loved it. It's just the- that's what I want from a trailer. <laughs> Blood, gore, yes. torture, murder, shock me. <laughs> mist. <laughs> mist. Um, it's yeah. I'm excited by that. I really want to see it, but I think I just can't see a world in which it's better than the film. No, that's the film a is big ass. Incredibly good, and just. I genuinely think that has the most devastating ending of any film ever made. So yes. uh, I remember seeing that and just wandering the streets 
I mean, much like I often do, just looking, you know, nihilistic and miserable. But uh, in particular, having seen that one. Uh, what else was there? Oh, It. Yes, I was it's, trying to say It this yeah. week. Yeah. It, the the film that sends the internet into meltdown. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, that looks pretty scary too, to be honest. It does. I really, really want to see that. But I love the, the TV, like the, the, the Tim Curry TV one so much. Mm. I'm a little concerned that I won't feel as attached to this one. I don't know, maybe yeah. I will. It's got a weird, lovely, like, 80s, kind of Stranger Things mm. kind of vibe. Um, but it is genuinely terrifying, everything we've seen so far. And it's, it's funny, it makes you, it gets you thinking, what is with clowns? <laughs> it's one of the great questions of the day. Clowns are inherently terrifying. And I was trying to unpick, we used to watch... Um, it, um, the 80s one, when when we were kids growing up, we used to watch it quite a lot. And um, me and my brother were always, like, absolutely genuinely terrified of clowns after that. And I was like, are we as human beings born with a fear of clowns or does it come from pop culture? Or is there something inherently scary about clowns? I wonder whether, well, certainly for me, it's the contrast between... Uh, it's the painted-on smile forced into a grimace. Do you know what I mean? It's the, it's the, the, the contradiction mm. there. Like I always remember in, in Poltergeist, the thing that terrified me was the expression on that toy clown's face when it attacks him. And I used to fall, fast forward through that bit because mm. it freaked me out. Uh, and I think that's what it was because it's that, it's that almost twisted rictus, rictus. grin. Well, it's funny because I'm reading, as you know, because you bought it for me when I was in yes. a mood, I'm reading The Crow at the moment because we were talking about the film The Crow, yeah. which I love. And I started reading, James bought me... Um, the comic book. James Hobart's graphic novel, yes, he, the original one. You did, and mm. I was reading it on the train this morning and I was thinking about that exact thing, which is this, this, this the comic book is so, t- I was like in tears on the overground this morning to work. And it is, it's that contrast between, obviously he's painted on this, this joyful smile, which is presumably some echo back to when he was happy. And it's, it's some of the most heartbreaking and devastating text I've ever read. Yeah. And it's that con- that contrast between the very public face and not a metaphorical public face, a literal public face. This and- tells you a lot about me that when Terry's in a bad mood, I'll buy her what is arguably the most depressing graphic <laughs> novel ever written. Is this the um, first goth episode of the Empire Podcast? <laughs> yeah, I, I am in full full emo gear as we speak. It's true. Um, well, let, let's let's liven things up a bit. Guy Ritchie wants you, John, to be Aladdin. Me? Yes, you personally <laughs> should be Aladdin. Well, I don't know that he does. I think he does. For, he, for a start, okay, so he's got an open casting call. This is what does. you're referring to. I am. Uh, I don't think I meet the criteria on a number of reasons. Are you one, about to be racist? One. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't laugh then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm about to not be racist. I'm about to point out the lack of racism here because they've got a casting call for a Middle Eastern actor. And, and you're In telling me that cultural appropriation is beyond you? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying Fair to. Enough. It's a worldwide casting call. There's a, an open audition on mm. Saturday in London, and then right. it's going around the world. And they have specified that they want a Middle Eastern actor, which is a good thing in this age of whitewashing controversies, that there is something where they are casting to mm. type, mm. and they are you know, not looking to have a racist casting. No, they're looking for an 18 to 22-year-old Middle Eastern who can sing and dance. Yes. Well, you I, don't qualify on I'm any level. I'm older, I'm white, and I can neither sing <laughs> nor, nor... Nor dance. Nor dance, But other than really. that, um, if anyone does fit that particular description, uh, open casting in the UK is on the 14th at the Old College Building, formerly the Cochrane Theatre, uh, in Hoban, uh, London, between 10 and 3pm. So, And please, if you go... Please share it with us on social media. Oh, God, do that, please. And, please. And if you go, can you ask Guy Ritchie why? 
<laughs> yeah, please do End that. End of and question. Film Facebook Live that. Yes. Tell us exactly what happened there. Um, also, and I have to throw this out there, so Emily Blunt has apparently, and I said been confirmed, she's been essentially name-dropped by uh, Doug Lyman uh, to appear in the Edge of Tomorrow sequel. Now, that in itself, you know, Tom Cruise is potentially going to be in it, she's potentially going to be in it. Neither of those things are earth-shattering, except he refers to the film as Live, Die, Repeat and Repeat, which is arguably the worst name for a no. sequel. Ever. It can't be called that. Come Bear on. Mind, this is a film that was called um, All You Need Is Kill and then renamed to Edge of Tomorrow. And then, and we talked about this on the podcast before, it was retconned yes. to be called Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow because Live, Die, Repeat was the, that, that's the tagline they used on the posters. Yeah. So now it's gone, it's become Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow and the sequel will be Live, Die, Repeat and Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I made up that bit. <laughs> well, the, the Live, Die, Repeat... It was added in like the DVD release, right? It was. Like they yeah. assumed that that was more, that was more marketable than the actual title. I, I just Why? I, I don't Ladies understand and marketing. Yeah, <laughs> I, there's no logic yeah, to that. That's that a tool. marketing in full meltdown, isn't it? That's that's just live, die, repeat, and repeat. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It sort of gets lost on your tongue and then explodes somewhere, like halfway up your tongue. It's I don't all know. Right. It's not. It's not good. I. I mean, this is taken from an interview with Doug Lyman, yes. right? So he might have been joking. Yes. I, it's surely an offhand comment, and I. I would imagine that's not the official confirmed final title. And even if it is, it'll change five times before it actually comes <laughs> right. out. So mm. you know, that's that. I liked All You Need Is Kill. That was a great title. Yeah, well, that's the graphic novel's uh, title, isn't it? Yeah. What well, presumably translation of the graphic novel's title. But uh, yeah, I, I like that. I well, mean, I none think, of them make any sense. No, and I think Emily Blunt had spoken before and said she she didn't see what was wrong with just that because yeah. um, the rest of it seems kind of like nonsense. Because what Edge of Tomorrow? That, I mean, that yeah, means so bland. Mean. It's, it's like, so bland. Isn't the Edge of Tomorrow like today? <laughs> well, it's just the Edge of Tomorrow is like what midnight. <laughs> what is it? The Edge. I mean, what's an Edge? Is it the side edge? The, the front edge? The leading edge? The back edge? The top edge? What? I don't think it has physical dimensions. <laughs> We've turned into a physics seminar. Let's move on to Hellboy. Um, Guillermo del Toro uh, announced recently, and we talked about it here, that uh, Hellboy was dead. And Ron Perlman was very upset, and they were not doing any more Hellboys. Turns out he was partly right. Uh, Hellboy is coming back, mm. uh, potentially with Neil Marshall directing, um, which is which is an interesting development. And David Harbour, uh, a.k.a. the Sheriff in Stranger Things, might be taking the lead. Apparently, this has Mike Mignola's blessing as well. So hmm. it's confusing, though, isn't it? I don't understand hmm. why, because Guillermo del Toro, as recently as I think earlier this year, put out a tweet on Twitter saying, "Would you like to see Hellboy 3? And he put a poll, and he said something like, "If it gets so many votes, then he will take it to the studio and have a conversation with Ron Perlman." And it got that many votes, and he had that conversation, and it didn't go any further. And you wonder why? Why? And and now they're pressing ahead with a different director I, and it's just it's strange there's obviously something that we're not hearing about here there's so, there's or there's some sort of studio politics but i think there is there is a, a well of opinion who would like to see that third del toro pullman movie i don't know if you remember we'll the studio see. originally wanted vin diesel for hellboy really? and guillermo insisted guillermo said it's ron pullman the studio went well we want to look at vin diesel and guillermo was like it's ron pullman uh, but there was a point where Vin Diesel was uh, considering. I spoke to him about it actually because he was when he was doing publicity for original Fast and Furious. That's when he was he was toying with the idea. But I don't think Guillermo would ever have made it with him. That would have been terrible. Oh, it would have been absolutely <laughs> awful. <yeah>. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Hellboy just talking about his family. <laughs> <laughs> 
Any other news, John? What have we got? Uh, I've got about? some news which is pertinent to me and possibly no one else. Um, but I'm quite excited about this. So there is a remake of Suspiria, the classic Dario Argento horror movie in the works. Luca Guardagino is directing the um, the remake. He, he directed uh, A Bigger Splash from last year. It's been shot. It's currently in post-production. And the news has arrived that Tom York, the lead singer of Radiohead, is going to be doing the soundtrack, which is very exciting news for someone as both a Dario Argento fan and a Radiohead fan wow. like myself. So if the film wasn't going to be sort of nihilistic and depressing beforehand, now we've pretty much assured it. <laughs> it's going to be brilliant. I mean, just the original Suspiria is famous for that sort of really disturbing, bleak, synthy goblin soundtrack. And if anyone can do weird, <laughs> disturbing, bleepy synth soundtrack it's tom york so i'm thrilled about the news i mean you know we don't really need remakes but there have to, if there has to be remakes then this seems like a good team tilda swinton is in this one chloe grace moretz and dakota johnson it's basically about witches and there's blood it's great i'm, I'm looking forward to this now Witches, blood and radiohead what more could we wish exactly for? Beep, 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 beep. Witches, blood, radiohead. That was uncanny. <laughs> yeah, little, little preview. I, swear, please, I beg you never to do that again. <laughs> For the sake of our clearly now dwindling subscriber base of this podcast, please never do that again. James, some more news. Yes. Um, so, there has been a Deadpool animated series ordered by FFX in the States, 10 episodes. Um, and it's actually the talent attached to it, the showrunners attached to it, are really, really exciting. So it's uh, Donald Glover, who's obviously the um, creator and the EP of Atlanta, um, and Stephen Glover um, as writer. And I mean, the, the, here's the thing, right, about Deadpool is, for me, Deadpool is Ryan Reynolds, mm. right? Especially the, the movie was massive. He's just started making Deadpool 2. This is, and if you read the Empire cover feature at the time of release of, of Deadpool, you will know that this is Ryan Reynolds. This is his passion project. It's what he's always wanted to do. He is Deadpool, in my mind. Um, so what's interesting is who they choose to voice this, because I think a lot of other people, Deadpool is, is Ryan Reynolds as well. And I know it's animation, and I know it's slightly different, but I think, I think it's really exciting. I think the talent attached to it is really fresh and really exciting, but I think... They're going to probably maybe struggle a little bit to move it away from Ryan, especially as Deadpool 2 is currently being made. Yeah. I would be very surprised there wasn't a Deadpool 3. And yeah, I think this is really exciting. I think uh, it could be fantastic. But what about Ryan? Is this kiddie-friendly Deadpool? No. It's not? No. You can't. I mean, you can't he's an R-rated superhero. Yeah. How could he be? Well, you know. He's a mech with the mouth. He's, he's full of profanity and sadness and anger. And um, he has a dark soul. Do kids need that? Do kids need... Yes, Yes, they yes, they do. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we know yes. your opinion on parenting. <laughs> yes. Which yes, is show them the real world. Darkness. Yes, <laughs> darkness and nihilism. Um, no, well, that's exciting. I'm I mean, they're, they're, they're pushing ahead with a new Spider-Man animated series, and that is separate to the film. So mm. you'd imagine that there is some sort of delineation An between... R-rated Spider-Man yeah. animated series. I don't but think so, no. But don't you think... Because I think Spidey, for me, Spidey isn't attached to any one particular actor. I think of Spider-Man as people step into the suit and they adopt him, essentially, for X period of time. Right, it's like James Bond. Yeah, yeah. where the character supersedes the actor, but I can't... And maybe it's just me, but I cannot start to unpick Deadpool and Ryan Reynolds. No, I think at this point, I think any of us can. No. So that's an interesting an interesting challenge for them. Mm. Uh, also in TV news, uh, this was actually broke before last week's podcast, but none of you 
people decided to discuss it, so I'm bringing it up now. Um, they're uh, surprise, surprise. They've decided to do Game of Thrones spin-off series. Yes, which they are spitballing at the moment. And this, as someone who has read everything around those books, uh, I think is very exciting. Well, it's a huge world, isn't it? I mm. mean, there's so many. I'm look, looking forward to seeing Samuel Tully's Adventures in the Library. <laughs> that would almost <laughs> certainly happen. Series, <laughs> the Librarian. Uh, no, I'd like to see uh, Duncan Egg, which uh, Martin did short stories on. That's uh, Sir Duncan the Tall and his squire Egg, uh, who is also Prince Aegon Targaryen. Okay. That's quite fun. Uh, he's done, I think, three short stories about that, which is good. Uh, story of Aegon the Conqueror. And his dragon, Balerion, the Black Dread. That would be quite fun. <laughs> Could uh, we see a prequel, maybe, with the Mad King and all, everything that happened before? Absolutely. Well, that would be Great an interesting War. one to do, sort of like the sort of the Baratheons' rebellion. So right. Robert Baratheons were rising up against uh, Aerys and, and 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 the Mad, the Mad King himself. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. You get Rhaegar in there. That's a, an interesting period. But it. it encroaches perhaps a little bit close on this. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not too far beforehand because, you know, a lot of the characters from this are in it. Sean Bean can come back, you know, Mark Addy. But uh, I um, I don't know. I'd like to see something completely different. I'd like to see Aegon the Conqueror or something, you know, fun. Someone said, you know, could they do something with, you know, the Night's King, uh, do something in Bravos. It's a huge world. I mean, you only need to go onto a wiki of Ice and Fire to see the kind of length and breadth of it. So mm. uh, I'm very excited about that. I'm also very excited that Judge Dredd is coming back. Yes, Terry's rolling her eyes. <laughs> this is me. I'm now veering back into fascism. Um, yes, uh, I'm a massive fan of uh, the Dread film, the one that Alex Garland wrote. In fact, we talked about it when he was on this very podcast. The new TV series, uh, which is uh, going to be called Judge Dread Megacity One, is apparently taking that tone and following those lines. So that, that's pretty cool. I like Dread. I think he's great. He should never take his helmet off um, and it should be Carl Urban. And I think we can all agree that is true. Yes. Fans have been sort of clamouring for a sequel to Alex Garland's Dread for a few years now, and it didn't quite make enough box office for it to justify one, but um, there's an, enough stories from the 2000 AD comics to, oh, endless. to, um, mm. to create all sorts of interesting directions. What I, I was quite excited about personally as a social media editor is Carl Urban liked our tweets on the news story about it, so that's oh, nice. Did he? That yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Also, it's timely, because I mean, Dread himself was a response to Thatcherite Britain, so what better time... <laughs> to bring dread back as a response to the current Brexit world we live in. Um, yeah. I'm trying to pay attention, but I could not give less of a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying you didn't read 2008? I didn't. And I don't know if it's a gender thing. I was vaguely interested for, for a hot minute when Sly did it. Because, as you know, from my love of Over the Top and the Rocky franchise, I have a bit of a Sylvester Stallone <laughs> thing going on. So I kind of got half interested at that point. Um but it just seems silly to me. How is it silly? It's, I mean, just the concept of I mean, it is, it is street judges walking around, being able to kill people who get on their nerves. I think this is a fantastic vision of England. This is One like your utopia. Moving, this is my utopia, James, absolutely. Welcome to James Dyerland. I am the law. <laughs> Do we want to just briefly talk about the Dunkirk trailer, which dropped just after uh, the podcast last week? Go for it. Because um, that's a thing, isn't it? Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Um, this is the, like the, the maybe the final big trailer that we saw. You can tell from my blank expression I've not actually watched it yet. Okay, but... good, <laughs> good. Um, well, I mean, Christopher Nolan is a man who likes to keep his cards close to his chest, as we know. So the, the, there's not much in this way of plot or story that we've we can garnish from this trailer. Am I pushing the boat out, if you will, uh, to say it involved a beach and some soldiers and some bombs? Oh, so you have seen uh-huh. it, then. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes, there are. There's, there's soldiers and there's a beach and there's planes and there's 
bombs and shooting and things. Um, but it looks very nice. There's, you know, you've got a huge cast of uh, famous people in there. Kenneth Branagh, uh, Tom Hardy is in a plane. Uh, we've got uh, Mark Rylance is in a boat doing his sort of, <laughs> his, his BFG Dunkirk rescuing in a wibbly boatly. <laughs> 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 uh, there's there's um, a famous person called Harry Styles, who's I'm led to believe is some sort of popular music artist. Yes, uh, yes, I believe so. He's in it as well. No, I mean it looks it looks amazing. I think um, it's going to be a big big sort of summer blockbuster. Christopher Nolan's never done a straight war movie before, so I'm excited. Yeah. The scale of it just looks incredible. I'm interested in terms of the narrative arc because it's you know Dunkirk as a battle isn't necessarily one with the most twists and turns and and the the kind of greatest arc from a storytelling perspective but everything we've seen so far it look and as you'd expect from a Christopher Nolan film it looks astonishing and the scale of it just looks incredible um and as you say it's just it's just absolutely kind of full to the brim of incredible mm. actors and Harry Styles who we are yet to see if he is an incredible actor but and I was talking to somebody about this in the pub the other night and I'm trying to still get my head around the Harry Styles thing right because this is Christopher Nolan mm. this is not a man who's going to put somebody in there to get a few extra bums on seats because he's got a huge following and and psychotic 12 year old girls follow him wherever he may lead including to the pictures one would presume um which means I think he must have seen something special in him he has to have done to cast him because actually the the kind of the debate around it and people like us who are po-faced film journalists going Harry Styles from One Direction would mean there's an element of risk I think attached to casting him in that role. I think Occam's Razor would tell us that if Chris Nolan has cast Harry Styles in his film, he's a massive fanboy. See, he comes across <laughs> as a serious filmmaker, but in reality, he's bopping along to, and if I knew any One Direction song, I would drop the name, name of one Something in here. Something about you thinking somebody's beautiful. Not a clue. None. Absolutely none. I've never heard one of their songs. I couldn't pick one out of a lineup, but I reckon Christopher Nolan could. Do you think? I do. Secret One Direction I fan. want someone to be with him when his phone rings, and I wouldn't be surprised if his ringtone is one of them there. Oh, hits. my God. That would be amazing. Mm. I mean, he does have children, right? He's Maybe he's got a teenage daughter who's just, like, persuaded him. Yeah, let's go with casting. that. Mm. Hey, from the trailer, yeah. you get the impression that it's not a main role. Like, it's a supporting no. role. He moves his hair. He moves, he's sort of... Like... Yeah, he, he moves a tendril. Yeah. Uh, so I, d- I don't get the sense that it's a huge... It's not a significant role. I don't think he has a huge amount of screen time is what we hear. We, he doesn't um, break into song at any point. No. It's not that sort of doesn't film. go into a musical. It doesn't go like a little bit South Pacific at any point. <laughs> but we are, we um, we interviewed Harry Styles and, and pretty much everybody else um, from the cast of Dunkirk for the next issue of Empire. So you'll have to look out for it because I'm, 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 I haven't read the article yet, but we will see what he says about being in a Christopher Nolan film. Yes, we will. And I think that is news. Yes. Um, before we press on with this week's interview, a quick word from our sponsor. The podcast is brought to you by MCM Comic Con. This year's convention features a wide variety of events to suit fans of every stripe. There's a gaming zone where you'll find the Tekken 7 tournament final. Uh, there's cosplay, masquerades, Comic Village, Kid Zone and much, much more. Uh, exhibitors at this year's event include Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony PlayStation, Nintendo and Bandai Namco. While special guests at the event include the likes of Donnie Yen, Vern Troyer, Billy Piper, Scott Adkins, Sam Jones and Lou Ferrigno. 
In addition to the main show, there are separate after-hours events, including a screening of Deadpool at the Prince Charles Cinema on the 25th. Terry will almost certainly be there. And a comic carnival party on the 27th, which fuses the worlds of carnival and cosplay. See what they did there? Comic, can't it? Anyway, uh, that event will feature live performances, street food, and craft beer. So do not wait. Hop online and order your tickets at mcmcomiccon.com. Now back to the show. I'll be honest, I'm bored of you both. So uh, should we have a guest? Let's have a guest. Sure. Uh, Helen O'Hara attached herself to Danny McBride this week, impregnating him with her searching alien covenant questions until answers burst from the bloody ruin oh, of his chest. Was that too far? That was too far, wasn't it? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm aroused, personally, Excellent. but... <laughs> and by all accounts, so was he. Let's find out. Here's Helen and Danny McBride. All right, well, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're joined today by Danny McBride to talk about Alien Covenant. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me here. You're very welcome indeed. So, uh, yeah, Alien... Uh, I'm guessing you're a fan of the franchise. You, you seem like a guy who knows his genre stuff. Uh, I am a humongous fan of the franchise, so I was stoked to be uh, invited uh, to participate in this universe. It's crazy. It is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, how were you asked? What was what was the what was the situation? Uh, you know, I was invited uh, to have a meeting with Ridley, and I wasn't really positive what the meeting was actually for. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, I showed up. And uh, I started talking to him, and we were just talking about old movies, and uh, you know, he was just kind of telling me some of his experiences. And then he pulled out this uh, giant book of conceptual drawings of spaceships and spacesuits, and then there were also xenomorphs in there. And so, <laughs> as just a fan of his and of Alien in general, it was like, oh my god, they're making he's going to make uh, another Alien film. And, oh, my God, he's talking to me about being in this. And so, uh, yeah, it was mind-blowing. I couldn't believe it. That's awesome. Did you have a bit of a pinch-yourself kind of moment? Really? Uh, all the time. I mean, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and then even when I got to the set, I still couldn't believe it. You know, I was I showed up on the set, and the moment you walk onto the spaceship and you're seeing the, the set design and the consoles and the whaling yutani symbol on the, you know, on the, on the, you know, on the walls of the ship – it was mind blowing, you know, and I was just like, I need to take pictures of myself without getting kicked off the set of the movie here. And then I was like, well, if I don't get kicked off, people will just see me in here. They'll know that I'm, I was here. So I don't really need to take selfies on the set. <laughs> that is a moral dilemma nowadays, isn't it? Do I take a selfie on the set of yeah. my movie and risk getting <laughs> thrown off my movie? Yeah, that's, hey, that's a, that's a real problem. Um, I was going to ask actually about the, because uh, I, I was on set, um, I got to visit last year and it was... It was proper. Like there's, it's a hole full of giant alien heads. Like it's an actual bridge of a ship. It's a cargo bay full of pods full of people sleeping. Like it's a proper. It re- it spaceship. really is. Uh, that was one thing that was amazing about this. I, you know, I had no idea we, if we would be acting this whole movie would be in front of a green screen. And uh, no, Ridley creates a world where you interact with it. You know, it's like we had the, these sets are massive. Uh, you know, everything you interact with is real. I mean, even so much so that he has like a contortionist dressed as the alien chasing you down the halls of the spaceship. And it uh, <laughs> it's not like you're running from a tennis ball, like you're running from an alien. And uh, it was scary. And it was uh, it was it made it not hard to sort of get into the world. That's amazing. What's it like to be chased by an actual alien? It's horrifying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so crazy about this movie is that, like, I, I rarely will even go see something I'm in because I just know that I, 
am not going to invest in the movie the same way that someone who isn't involved with the movie would. And, uh, and I just can't really like get past myself being in it. So I just like save myself the trouble. But with this film, it was crazy that after participating in it, like knowing exactly what's going to happen, I still found myself like turning away from the screen and jumping at parts. I mean, it was, uh, it was mind blowing. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, in, you're a pilot, obviously, on the ship. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking to uh, is it Callie Hernandez, who's your co-pilot, mm-hmm. um, and she was saying she had to work out what buttons did what for her own satisfaction yeah. and like type her name in mm-hmm. so she'd look like she knew what she was typing and this kind of thing. Did you have a similar sort of system where it's like what did what on your, on uh, your console? You do 100%. I mean, especially it's like, you know, this is an ensemble. So, you know, in, those early, in a lot of the early scenes, you're in scenes with you know, 10 people and you have no idea when the camera's on you when it's not. And you don't want to be an, an asshole who's just back there pushing the same button over and over again. <laughs> so yeah, you do kind of like work out, well, you know, I'm imagining that this button here is thrusters and this button here. <laughs> and then it was all about just like, I started just like watching how pilots operated and how calm they were when they would, fl- you know, flip these buttons. And so, uh, yeah, because you also didn't want to like overact with the button pushing and just like, you know, God, what the hell is, what is he avoiding? What's he dodging? Or why is he like messing with the console so much, you know, and all the things you just get into your head about when you're doing something yeah. like this. But you had you have a head start in looking cool as a pilot because you've got your cowboy hat. hat. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Ridley talked about that cowboy hat in the very first meeting. He said he wanted to be an homage to Slim Pickens' character in Dr. Strangelove. And uh, so I love that film. So that was, uh, that was a very uh, a, a cool thing to give a shout yeah. out to, I thought. Is that Major King Kong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And did you? Uh, and then you you actually got a spacesuit as well. So what's the what's the spacesuit experience? It looks incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, it is incredibly uncomfortable. You know, I didn't realize that I was claustrophobic until we did this film. Oh, At no. one point, I had to like get into a uh, into a sleeping pod, and I was I wasn't thinking anything about it at all. I, I never imagined that being in one of those sleeping pods would ever be a big deal. And uh, the first take, we just go in there, and I'm just all casual. I get into it. Uh, you lay down, and then boom, it seals over top of you. And like the glass that's sealing over you is literally like half an inch from your nose. You can't move at all, and you have no control of getting it back open. Like they have to open it up from out there. Ooh. So I'm in there, and then the scene's going on, and I'm and it's going on and going on, and I'm just like, how long is this fucking take going to be? You know, and. It was about five minutes, and then, like, they open it up, and I'm just, like, panting. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, how long do I have to do this every time I have to sit in this thing? And uh, and then I just heard Ridley being like, all right, we're ready for take number two. And I just looked at Kath and just like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's okay. I'm going to go in here. And so I think that kind of spooked me out a little bit. So then when I got into this spacesuit, I mean, that thing is so confining. And once again, it's like you're sealed in this thing, and they tell you, like, look, listen for the fan. If the fan goes out, you'll lose consciousness. Like, that's how you're getting air. And you can't, like, you can't even get your hands around to open this thing up. Uh, so, yeah, you're at the mercy of somebody else. So, yeah, it took. I was like, you know, I, I could never be in outer space because I don't think I could, like, have a space helmet on for long periods of time. So I think I'm stuck on Earth. That, that, to be honest, from what I've seen in this series about space, yeah. you, like it's safest It's here. safer just We're to just, stay here. Just yeah. stay here. Stay in your own backyard. Yeah. yeah. Never, ever explore. Yeah. <laughs> this is fine here. <laughs> um, and what about the, I mean, you, you mentioned the ensemble. What about the, the sort of 
the background to these characters? Did you guys have conversations among yourselves, like who's worked together before, who knows what? Yeah, you know, you know Ridley talked to us a little bit about that, about who was who who had the deeper relationships. You know, uh, they they had worked out that uh, that Amy Semmes character, Ferris, and myself mm-hmm. that that we were friends with uh, with Catherine's character and Franco's character before we had gone on this mission, and so you kind of knew who you were closer to. And then, yeah, everyone worked on their own, you know, a little bit. And one, one thing that was cool with this film is that, you know, they shot that supplemental footage, uh, you know, for the publicity of it. Like, they had that Last Supper and those interviews. And, you know, this film starts out with something very bad happening, and then it only gets worse from there on <laughs> out. So it was nice to shoot those things where your character wasn't in a moment of danger, and you could mm-hmm. actually have these, like, lighter moments. Uh, and it was cool. It just, like, gave you a chance to uh, show your character and in like I don't know, in, in a more diverse setting where it's not always just running away from an alien because yeah. uh, you're about to be killed, but you can also just be bullshitting and talking. You know, yeah, not survival mode the whole yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah, and Franco followed you to Alien. I yeah. guess. <laughs> What's up that with that? Copycat. <laughs> <laughs> I was thrilled. I love Franco, and so. I was thrilled to have him come out there and we had been shooting for a few weeks before he came out and so it was kind of like funny just to like he was there and I'm like yeah this is the ship man this is like this over here is where I sit <laughs> you know like just showing him the ropes it was cool <laughs> that's awesome um and uh yeah it, it I don't know it just seems like a like a uh, an interesting group of people as well like they they you know really Scott's gone out there and found a diverse interesting bunch of people that you're like all right yeah i see this this looks like a spaceship crew of the future yeah sort of makes sense yeah and i think that like you know one one concept of the script i thought was so cool reading it originally was just the idea that it's a colonization mission so it's all couples on the Mm. ship and uh that just adds another level to the uh to the fear of it you know because it's you know it's one thing to be scared for your own safety but you know if you're married and and your partner is in uh, in you know a life or death situation, and you know there's something horrific happening to them, and you're absolutely helpless to do anything about it. I mean, that's almost as you know horrifying as being chased by a xenomorph. You know, it just yeah. plays on these other fears as well. So, um, so I've got to ask you know a bit bit more about your career in general. Um, obviously, you've been working a lot on TV recently, mm-hmm. and this is a bit of a return to film for you in, in some way. I mean, you've been mm-hmm. consistently working in film, but more in TV recently. Um, has this sort of kind of rekindled your love of the big screen a little bit? Uh, I do love the big screen. I love movies. But, you know, honestly, like the, the, like the environment in, in the big, uh, like, studio comedies, to me, just has gotten boring. You know, it's like the, the process of what a comedy has to go through to actually, like, reach an audience. It's just like a crapshoot. I mean, it's not like good comedies end up if you make a good comedy it equals uh you know a successful weekend it's you know i think comedy is really tricky and i think the best comedy is very specific i think it uh it it has to be able to hit a specific you know sensibility and i think a lot of times uh if if you're trying to hit everyone, I just don't think the movies are as interesting. And I think that you have to do that in order to sort of like, you know, be able to, to succeed in that marketplace. And I think with TV, you're able to be very specific with the comedy. And I think that you don't have to worry if everyone just shows up the first two days it's out. Yeah. Uh, people can find it at their own pace and you're not judged by that. And so for me, I just feel like right now I'm just not interested in much comedy that – uh, that is in the movie theaters. I think that independent comedies are still cool, but uh, I don't know. It's just a little soul-crushing. I mean, the idea that you have to make a film and then test it in front of an audience, and, and an audience in Burbank gets to decide 
for the rest of the country and the rest of the world, whether your yeah. jokes are funny or not. It just, to me, seems like a completely backwards way to create something. And yeah. I think we started gravitating towards HBO because they weren't making us do any of that. We could do exactly what we wanted to, and uh, and the audiences could just decide where they liked it. We didn't have to um, jump it through any strange hoops. And to us, that just seemed a little pure and, uh, and just more of a fun atmosphere. But, I mean, I still love movies, and I love when a good comedy actually does make it. It's just very difficult to do that. Yeah. What kind of things do you watch? Uh, I watch TV mainly, and then in uh, documentaries and horror films. That's sort of what I what what I'll gravitate towards if yeah. I'm sitting on the couch and have to find something. Now you're working with Bloomhouse on mm-hmm. the Halloween remake. Yeah, I mean, some people are going to think that that is sacrilege. Yes. What What is your response uh, to that? You know. Uh, I just feel like look at us where the Halloween franchise is gone. I think that we can. Uh, there's a lot of room for improvement, uh, <laughs> you know. But I think you know David and I are coming from it as uh, we are horror fans and we are humongous fans of John Carpenter and of what he did with the original Halloween. And so I think from watching this and being disappointed by other versions of this series, I think we're just trying to strip it down and just take it back to what was so good about the original. Of like it was just very simple and just achieved that you know that level of horror that wasn't corny and it wasn't uh it wasn't turning michael myers into some like supernatural being that couldn't be killed like that stuff to me isn't scary i think you know i want to be scared by something that i really think could happen you know Hmm. i think it's much more horrifying to uh to be scared by someone standing in the shadows while you're taking the trash out as opposed to like someone who can't be killed pursuing you you know uh so yeah blum had uh approached David uh, about directing a, uh, you know, a new version of it. And uh, so David came to me because he knew I was a fan of it and was like, would you want to help me crack this? And so, yeah, we worked for about three weeks on like on, on our take of what we would do because we weren't even sure if we wanted to do it. You know, we know I'm, I'm the same way. I'll be the first person to go online and bitch about uh, <laughs> about someone rebooting something, you know, and why are you doing this? And so for us, we were like, we have to make sure that this is something we actually would want to see or else mm-hmm. it's not worth doing and so we came up with a take that we thought was cool and uh and then we actually went and pitched to john carpenter and uh and we pitched to him and he loved it he was into it and it was like insane to uh have his seal of approval and to have him respond to where we were talking about taking michael myers next and uh and i just think it's you know if somebody's gonna do it i'd rather be the one doing it so i can make sure that it's good (laughs) but i'm not you know we're not making it a comedy it's not like we're taking this and we're gonna try to like put some weird comedic spin on it i'm not acting it or anything you know we're just i'm producing it and writing it with david and uh yeah we just want to get back to what was scary about the first halloween is it contemporary film or is it going to be uh it's contemporary yeah yeah and what's the bloom house environment like because obviously i mean they've they've had some incredible films recently and they've incredible been uh out. you know what man it's been really really cool which they've been uh they've been very supportive and they give you a lot of creative freedom and then i think what their trick is is that they keep those budgets so low that it allows you to be able to take risks and to yeah. do things that i think once the budgets of the of the films get higher you they, that the you know you can't be responsible and take risks mm-hmm. when it comes to putting a lot of money in there and i think that that's honestly like what most of the problem is with 
movies these days. It's just that the budgets are so expensive that you suddenly can't take any risks. And I also think it doesn't force the filmmakers to be creative because I think that when you are given limitations, you have to really think about what you're doing and how you're going to spend those resources. And I think that that, you know, sometimes brings out some very cool ideas and, yeah. and, and things that are different. That's something Ridley Scott clearly does. I mean, on, yeah. on his films, you know, shooting in such a compressed period of time, apart from anything else, you yeah, know, you've got to yeah. be ready to go. Yeah, you do. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I've, I've, one of my colleagues has, has insisted that I ask about Hot Rod. Do you often get asked to, to do the Hot Rod High Five? Uh, I do. You know, like that is a movie that, uh, once you, get, you know, I've been in a lot of movies that didn't make any money the weekend <laughs> they opened, but then once they, you know, they are on video or DVD or however you watch it, uh, people seem to find it then. And uh, Hot Rod is still a movie to this day that I definitely, people come up to me about it all the time, tell me that they like to party, uh, tell me that that's how you do a high five. Uh, I think that movie is so funny. I, I think that those lowly eye guys are just incredible. They're so funny. But, you know, they're a prime example. I mean, the idea that a, a movie like Popstar doesn't make a shitload of money at the box office, I don't know. For me, as a comedian, it just makes me feel like, well, what will work? I mean, that movie mm. is so funny and so smart, and there's such a high level of creativity going on there. And the idea that people don't show up for that uh, just kind of makes you feel like, why bother? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a downer. Um, but no, I, I I know what you mean. It's but it's a uh, it's a weird environment at the moment. It's a very especially for comedy. It's a very strange environment. I just think the comedy right now is better served on TV. It just really is. It just you can. You can be bold. And I think also if you're into fucked up comedy, I think people are more comfortable <laughs> watching that stuff in the confines of their own home than being out in public and letting people see what they think is funny. <laughs> There's, you're worried about being judged and what you're yeah. laughing at. Yeah. Yeah, there is a, there is probably an element of that. That's yeah, that's a tr- that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you very thank much. You. Cheers. That was Alien Covenant star Danny McBride, which means it must be time for reviews. Um Kicking off this week's lineup is John Madden's Miss Sloan. Uh, this one stars Jessica Chastain as a political lobbyist who quits her job to take on the NRA and fight for gun control, which always goes down very well in America. Uh, what do we think of this one, Terry? So, let me begin by saying that the official Empire Star rating for this film is three stars. My personal view differs somewhat from the official <laughs> Empire view, but we will get into that. So, yes, as you say, Jessica Chastain is Elizabeth Sloan. She's a, a DC lobbyist who annoys her boss by essentially turning down a job for a pro-gun um, group. So she quits and she moves to a kind of a smaller, scrappy boutique firm, um, which is basically backing a proposed law to impose more restrictions on guns. And then, obviously, that kind of brings her into line with some feared enemies who essentially try and destroy her life and her career. Now, here's the thing with this film. It <laughs> sounds incredibly dry, and that's because it basically is. So the script is incredibly dense. The dialogue is incredibly impenetrable. I kept kind of drifting off in the pictures when I would definitely should have been paying attention. And at, at the heart of it, her character is meant to be this ball-breaking, tough lobbyist who all the men in uh, Washington, D.C. feared that she was a career woman who hadn't taken this move in, in terms of the firm to to basically put in more restrictions for gun laws because she's fundamentally a good person, but because she's a careerist. So she paints this portrait at the heart of it as a hard-bitten career woman. And by doing that, it's basically she has no friends. She has no personal life. When she wants to get laid, she hires a male escort to some nondescript hotel and gets her leg over. 
So for me, it just deals in these kind of really awkward cliches and tropes about women in powerful positions, about personal sacrifice for professional gain. There is a bit where I literally thought she was going to do a Destiny's Child impression. It was like, right, everybody, I'm in a boardroom and I'm going to be a strong, independent woman. It was just, I felt, I personally felt it was very hackneyed. And um, I found that the story in itself wasn't particularly compelling. There was some very uh, good courtroom kind of drama moments um but fundamentally the arc didn't kind of pull me along and Chastain who I think is a remarkable actor I think is incredibly wasted in this role and I just kind of find it a little bit frustrating a little bit deflating um and I wouldn't watch it again wow in a nutshell and do we, I mean, is it, is it a well-conveyed argument? Does it tell you a lot about the, the ins and outs of lobbying at CNRA, no. the difficulty of none of that? You learn no. nothing. No, as I say, Ch- Chastain is great in everything, pretty mm. much. Um, I think the material isn't great. Uh, if you, do you know what? If you are in two quite dense courtroom <sighs> dramas where they use a lot of long words that you probably don't understand, then you should definitely go and see this film. But the Empire Star Rating is a three-star rating, which is a recommendation. It is. Um, but, yeah, just for me, it didn't kind of have the narrative punch that you kind of want from it. It didn't deliver any real emotional blows in terms of revealing anything in particular about her as a woman, her character's kind of backstory, any kind of pathology in terms of how she ended up, how she did. It, it kind of never got beyond um, trope and cliché. And, uh, yeah, so I, I found it quite disappointing. And there were probably missed opportunities to do that. You got a sense of there'd been some kind of events in her background that had developed her into this quite brittle, um, caustic character. And that actually, underneath it all, there was a, a nice human being. But you never really got that far from a narrative perspective. So that that kind of thread was never fully fleshed out. Okay. Well, Sorry. If, if that sounds appealing, go and see it. If you're hoping to run into Terry, maybe watch something else. Um, we gave that three stars. Uh, next up is Jawbone. Uh, this is Thomas Napper's boxing drama. This sees Johnny Harris as a down-on-his-luck fighter who slips into the world of unlicensed fistfights, as I think we shall all be doing now that we work in Camden Town. John, what was this like? Yes, yeah, so this is uh, Johnny Harris sort of stepping out into uh, his own... Is his own turf. You might know him from, he's sort of skulked on the sidelines of a lot of British drama and TV and film. He worked in the This Is England series. Um, and this is his first film as a screenwriter, and he's also stars. So he stars as Jimmy, who is this sort of um, former champion boxer who's down on his luck, as you say. He's uh, he's alcoholic. He's about to be made homeless. He's He's really not in a good place. And so he turns to boxing to sort of bring himself back to uh, a sense of normality. And I mean, you know, the boxing movie is, is a well-trodden path. Um, we've seen this sort of boxing as redemption narrative played out mm. quite a lot. Um, but it's done really well here. It's done really well. I think uh, there's there's a sort of gritty and brutal element to this film um, from director Thomas Napper, which makes it really interesting and fascinating to watch. It's not an easy watch sometimes. It can be really uh, tricky. It can be really unpleasant. Johnny Harris himself is is fantastic mm. in the role. He, there's an amazing sort of sadness and vulnerability to him. And is it Ray Winston's his trainer in this, I believe? That's correct, And, and yes. Ian McShane is the gangster. That's right. I mean, you've got Ray Winston and Ian McShane in very Ray Winston-y and Ian McShane-y <laughs> sort of roles. Um, you know, Ray Winston taking time out of his betting adverts to play a sort of 
uh, a gym owner who talks tough, but he's 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 firm but fair. Um, and then you've got Ian McShane, who's a bit more slightly dodgy, uh, unlicensed boxing promoter. And Michael Smiley as well. It's so great to see him having the career that he has at the moment. Um, he plays his his personal trainer. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 a dark film. There's no doubt about it. But it, but there is also it's also fascinating. And and what sets it apart, perhaps, from a lot of, of boxing movies, is it looks at addiction and it looks at sort of the the underclass in society. Uh, in quite an authentic and honest way, in in a way that we perhaps haven't seen in, in boxing movies before. So it's definitely worth a watch. Very um, good. Four stars we gave it. Four mm. stars. I think Empire. Johnny Harris is such an underrated he really is. British actor. I mean, just him in This Is England, um, 86 particularly, which was the uh, Channel 4 TV programme which accompanied the film... He is astonishing in that. The darkness in that. And stop laughing. James is laughing at me because any excuse to talk about This Is England or Shane Meadows. For anyone who doesn't know Terry, uh, This Is England to Terry is what Friends is to most other people. <laughs> well, he is remarkable. That, and I, I was really excited to see him get this kind of role um, because I still think he's kind of on the edges mm. um, in terms of a profile. Um, and I think, yeah, I think he's so incredibly talented and he's just the real deal as an actor. Yeah, and if there's any justice in the world, this will be the film that sort of propels him into the public consciousness a bit more, I think. So, Excellent. fingers crossed. Well, four stars for Jawbone. Uh, Francois Ouzon's France is next on the list. Uh, this is a mystery set in the aftermath of World War One. And while I could tell you all about this, it suffices to say that it is A, in French, and B, Phil de Samlin gave it a hearty four stars. I'm not saying those two things are necessarily connected, <laughs> but draw whatever conclusion for that that you wish. Um, I think we shall close with Alien Covenant. This is the sixth Alien film, or eighth if you include the Alien vs. Predator films, which nobody should. Um, Alien Covenant takes us aboard the USCSS Covenant, a colony ship en route to a new home on the arboreal world of Origai 6. Pulled off course to check out a rogue transmission, they stumble across Prometheus survivor Michael Fassbender, who's no longer a disembodied head, and an arseload of hostile organisms intent on killing them. Terry, you were a big fan of this one, weren't you? So I I really enjoyed this film, and I think I probably liked it a little bit more than the rest of the Empire office. So the official Empire review was three stars. Yes. Um, I thought it was a four-star film. I it's not it's not without flaws. I think everybody can acknowledge that there are certain storytelling flaws. Um, in this film, there is, you know, the, the Michael Fassbender character, and I don't want to give any spoilers away here, um, there was a certain plausibility issue that I had with some of the <laughs> um, with some of the plot devices and twists that you see on screen. But for me, it has what great... The, the great bits in Alien and Aliens, the sheer terror, the thrills, I found that they were there in spades in this film from kind of the get-go. So what I loved is there wasn't much suspense. If you love your suspense in an alien film, then this kind of isn't for you. What you get is full-blooded terror horror. You get aliens right from the get-go. I don't think that's spoiling anything to say that. And I loved that there's a baby alien in there, which is pretty much out there and everybody's seen, which I absolutely loved. Alien Groot. Alien Groot. <laughs> I loved the new... I loved all of the aliens, actually, in the film. I loved the sheer terror in it. It scared me, I think, a lot more than it scared you, would be fair to say. I think it, visually it was absolutely stunning. And I actually loved the colonists who are going to populate the new planet. I actually loved the fact they were couples, and I know not everybody did, but I really liked the emotional texture 
that gave um, to the film. I think, you know, Danny McBride is fantastic. Um, I think Catherine Waterson, I really, really liked her. I think she's always going to suffer from the comparisons with Sigourney Weaver. Mm. And that's, and that's you know, kind of a, a poison chalice, really. Even while trying to copy her haircut. Well, she, I, she didn't cut her own hair, did she? <laughs> Frankly, it wearing, looked like she might have done. They're wearing the same vest in quite a lot of it. So I really love this film. As I say, it is not without flaws, but for me, it packed so many of the punches that I was missing in Prometheus that I think I forgave it quite a lot. And I really want to see it again. I really enjoyed the, the, the terror that I felt. And yeah, for me, a four-star alien film. I did like it. A bit less. Mm-hmm. If I'm honest, I premer- I premered, I premered Prometheus. Oof. I preferred Prometheus. Um, I thought Prometheus was an incredible mess. I thought it was a very ambitious mess. I think this film is far less ambitious, but also slightly less of a mess. Um, my biggest problem with this mm. is it felt like it was a retread. It felt like, uh, you know, we said before, like it's, it's like a mixtape. Do you know what I mean? It felt like it was a, almost a reworking of Alien. You know, there's the ship travelling, they're all asleep, there's a radio mm. signal, they go and investigate it, they go down. And you're like, haven't I seen this before better? Um, and there's, I mean, look, there's a sequence in this film, and it's not a spoiler because it's in the trailer, as apparently is all of the film, but that's neither here nor there, um, where Billy Crudup genius Billy Crudup leans over an alien egg as it opens and peers inside. I'm sorry, but fuck off. (laughs) That is a Darwin Award right there. At this point, what are you doing? And it's just, but even as a reader, you know, a reader, a viewer, even as a viewer, you're watching that and it's just like, you know, really? Really? There are a few moments where you do sort of your head clasps your head. When John Hurt did that, you're like, oh, what could possibly happen? Yeah. At this point, you're just kind of rolling your eyes as he does something incredibly stupid. One character uh, at one point says, I'm just going to go take a leak. And you think, well, I'm sure nothing bad will happen to him. <laughs> I mean, it's like you can imagine uh, like Jamie Kennedy from Scream just doing yeah, kind of yeah. off-camera exactly. commentary on everything that's yeah. happening, just slapping his head. But I think um, I, I disagree with you, James. I think this is better than Prometheus. And interestingly, I think it also makes Prometheus retroactively better in, yes. a, in a weird Yes. way like it sort of it sort of clarifies a few things and it updates a few things that that makes that sort of chronology work a bit better no it would absolutely do that because it is a direct <laughs> sequel to prometheus yes and mm. if it made sense in the context of prometheus you'd be absolutely right no i no it, it does you're right it does it puts more clarity into prometheus and weirdly i think that's one of the reasons i might not love it because i love prometheus as a piece of hard sci-fi completely divorced from the alien franchise mm. and by the very end of it you can kind of take it as something independent. I don't think it works within the broader narrative of the Alien series. And for that reason, I don't think this does either. But this tries to be an Alien film, whereas Prometheus almost doesn't. And that's what I like about it. This film, to me, was... uh, It didn't scare me at all. I didn't find uh, there to be a lot of tension in it, which I found a little bit lacking. But I think my biggest problem with this... Uh, and it's no fault of... Well, actually, it is directly Ridley Scott's fault, and that's that the day after I saw this, I went and saw the 70mm print of the original Alien. And frankly, it's night and day. I mean, that is absolute genius from top to bottom. And I think that, if anything, shone a light on the deficiencies of this one for me. But isn't that always going to be a fundamental problem, right? Yes. Because yes, anything is. that is done within that franchise is going to hold up 
in an inferior way. Mm. I just think it is. And I think that has a certain context around it and it's become iconic in a way that you struggle to see how a new alien outing could. And it is a retread, but isn't it only retreading so much as The Force Awakens is a retread of, of Empire Strikes Back? Do you know what I mean? Like, which you enjoyed, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Force Awakens definitely does does tick the Star Wars boxes quite heavily. Uh, and this does the same thing. This felt more of a... Oh, you want an alien film? Well, let's give you an alien film type thing. And I don't know, this is the kind of thing... I don't want to say... It feels really weird to be criticising Ridley Scott. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, But this feels like... And I'm not going to say it's a fan film because it doesn't feel like a fan film, but it feels that if a fan were filling out a questionnaire to the things they wanted to see in an alien film, many of those things would be on this. Mm. And that sounds like a good thing on paper, and in some ways it is, but I think the best films are when they take you somewhere you don't expect. Like Aliens, when you went into that, having seen that, you had no clue what you were in for. Uh, and I think that works better. That's what I would have preferred. That said, the set design was magnificent. Mm. So No, it looks amazing. You know. And I think, you know, he's trying to do a lot with these movies, with Prometheus mm. and Alien Covenant. There's obviously a grand philosophy. There's some religious metaphors. There's, you know, Greek myths being invoked. It's all very sort of epic and lofty and it doesn't quite work all the time but I quite like that ambition mm. you know it's quite impressive even if it is a sort of noble failure a noble a failure a noble failure <laughs> Three stars, says Empire, <laughs> the, which is a recommendation. There is a, there is, there is a certain segment I'm thinking of, which when people see the film will know exactly what I'm talking about, which is just incredibly... Uh, there is a whole character and a whole um, thread which is just incredibly pretentious. And I'm from a council estate and I was rolling my eyes. At that that was the bit I was clasping my head and rolling my eyes because I was like, I can't, handle, I can't handle this. I can handle I can handle the blood and the gore and the scares and, and things erupting out of bodies... That's all well and good, but do not give me pretension because I, that's what I struggle with. You must have tittered at the line in it when he says, "Let me do the fingering." Yes, <laughs> there yes. are some there are some great lines from there Michael are Fassbender. Some excellently pervy double entendres, which are entirely unintentional. Um, but yes, uh, so that's Alien Covenant. Let's not talk about it anymore, since there is indeed a, an, uh, a special coming. You can hear mm. uh, more, a lot more. In fact, on Alien Covenant, uh, in the Epic Spoiler Special, which, all being well, will be available to download next week. I think we're recording it on Monday. Yes, hopefully. So by the time John gets off his arse and edits it, uh, it'll be, you know, midweek. Uh, and if you haven't listened to it yet, our Guardians of the Galaxy Spoiler Special is available to download as we speak. And with that, we're done. See? Whew. We don't need Hewitt to turn this shit around. That's fucking triumphant, <laughs> that was. Um, that was the Empire Podcast with me, your reluctant host, James Dyer. Uh, join us next week as we go all Cockney Camelot with Charlie Hunnam for Guy Ritchie's King Arthur. King Legend Arthur. of the fucking sword, in it. Um, until then, it's a grumpy goodbye from me. Uh, it's goodbye from John. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Terry. Bye. That's it. I'm done. I quit! <laughs>